When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to Studying Media Critically, a podcast from the New Books Network. I'm your host, Gummo Clare, and today I'm joined by Jonathan Stern, who is James McGill Professor of Culture and Technology at McGill University. Uh, We'll be talking about his wonderful book, Diminished Faculties, A Political Phenomenology of Impairment, which was published in 2021. Welcome to the show, Jonathan. Thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. So I guess, could we start with you telling us a little bit about your academic and professional background? Yeah, so I work at McGill. I'm a professor of communication studies and cross-appointed in gender, sexuality, and feminist studies, music research, and social studies of medicine. Um, I did my PhD in the 1990s at the University of Illinois in a sort of cultural studies version of American communication studies. Uh, For those of your listeners who are not in the U.S., uh, communications can be quite social science or applied. It's a field more than it's a discipline. And I was very fortunate to sort of find a group of uh, teachers and uh, classmates who were really into uh, thinking about culture and power. And that's sort of the space that I occupied. Um, Diminished Faculties, which we're talking about today, is my third book. Um, and I've also written lots of articles. Uh, the first book is called The Audible Past, The or- Cultural Origins of Sound Reproduction. Um, and that, I mean, it does what it says on the tin, uh, which is to take sound recording, radio, and telephony as cultural artifacts rather than historical causes um, and say how and why did these things emerge when they did. My second book was MP3, The Meaning of a Format, Oh, and I should say Audible Pass 2003, MP3, 2012. Uh, and MP3 is a 100-year history of what was then a 19-year-old uh, digital audio format, which is a conceit. There's also a new books network podcast about it if you want to hear about it. Uh, but for that book, I was really interested in, like, I guess you could say the mathematical model of the gaps and absences uh, in an average human hearer or listener. Um uh, and uh, um, 
sort of how that got built into the MP3 and what that could tell us about sound culture and sonic history. And I wound up writing a lot about compression as well and formats, both of which have become interesting sort of thematic preoccupations for me and other people. Uh, since then. So I'm some kind of blend of like a cultural studies person, a media historian, a media theorist, a disability studies scholar, a musician, um, and like a person. <laughs> uh, if I can, if I can include that, that's a good idea. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, I, I guess the usual question that I ask guests now is to explain how they were drawn to writing this specific book. And in the case of diminished faculties, this question is quite fundamental to the work itself. So could you tell us a little bit about the kind of your personal background that led into writing this book? Yeah, so this isn't going to be apparent to your listeners probably, although if we talk long enough, my voice might change a little bit, which would actually be interesting. Um, so I have a paralyzed vocal cord, which I acquired in 2009 when uh, cancer ate my right recurrent laryngeal nerve. Now, at that point, I was already pretty well established as a scholar of sound and technology and culture. And so, of course, immediately people started saying, isn't it ironic that something you write about sound and something happened to your voice? And my response, which I recount in the book at one point, is nobody ever says that to like film scholars or art historians who wear glasses. Right. So what is it about sort of the politics of the impairment um, of the voice? So I have a somewhat rare version of papillary, excuse me, I have a somewhat rare version of papillary thyroid cancer, uh, which is normally considered the quote unquote good cancer. Um, although say that to any thyroid cancer patient and that they would be, uh, they would be right to bite your head off, but it is called that. Um, and uh, mine is a very aggressive kind. So I have metastases in my lungs. Uh, and uh, usually um, the cancer is not disabling. And in my case, I gave me a kind of impaired voice, which I said, as I said, is not terribly audible to you because I'm using a microphone and uh, listening to my voice in my headphones. Uh, but if we were talking in a room or I were running a seminar, I would probably be wearing a personal speech amplifier if I wasn't, um, if I wasn't speaking through a PA to you. Um, so I have a voice in need of supplementation, which for somebody who writes about the mediality of the voice immediately becomes pretty interesting. So that's the personal uh, part of it. But it's not, like, it's not like this happened and I was driven to write the book. I was driven to write about it. And actually, I blogged and even there's stuff that's not on the blog, but in notes um, that provided an important resource for my recounting some of that experience as sort of primary source material to analyze for the book. Um, but I was initially super resistant to it because of that sort of contrarian, nobody asks, you know, people about their glasses thing. And it really took me a while to come around to it. I started teaching a course on disability uh, and technology in uh, the 2011-2012 academic year, and I teach that every year, and sort of just thinking with uh, gener now generations of undergraduate students really shaped um, how I approached it. Um, also, a lot of work, good work on disability and technology came out. Um, I, was our, I was long interested in disability. Uh, I'm a child of people trained in social work. 
And my fam, many of my family members are in one or another helping profession or were. Uh, and deafness and muteness are major themes in the audible past. Uh, and so in the 1990s, I actually did a lot of reading in what was then quite emergent as a field of disability studies and also deaf history and things like that. So it, it's not like it's a new concern for me when it happened to me, but of course that changes your perspective. And then, you know, dealing with it in a sustained way over time just really um, got me in the mindset to do the work to write the book. Um, and also a few people just frankly encouraged me because I always have too many projects and they were like, no, you should do this one. Um, and that, you know, I'm good at taking advice and I actually appreciate that um, from, from other people. So, um, so the voice that, that explains the voice part of the book, but I also had, unsettled business with phenomenology, which is like a weird sense. It's a sentence only a scholar could love. Uh, I, um, in Audible Past, I really critiqued phenomenological approaches to sound and listening in part because at the time, pretty much everyone that was presented to me, and this has to do with my situation in a sort of humanistic media studies communication tradition, but every phenomenology of sound that was presented to me sort of came out of this Toronto school uh, tradition, uh, sort of shaped by Marshall McLuhan, Walter Ong, uh, you know, maybe I get a little Don Eide or uh, Marie Schaefer, somebody like that, but um, I really wanted to push back against that. I was also, you know, like many people, read a lot of Foucault in grad school who also resist the phenomenological impulse until the last two um, volumes of History of Sexuality. And uh, I really thought I needed to resettle my accounts because if you actually look at my work, it's very concerned with other people. Uh, I'm not much of a, I'm not a very effective post-humanist because uh, I like people too much. So I'm a little bit too, too humanist, I guess, uh, by some, uh, by some accounts. And uh, a lot of my work has an ethnographic direct dimension, has a cultural historical dimension. I talk about experience. I tell stories. People do things. Uh, and so I really wanted to go back and think about it. And at first I would, thought I was writing an anti-phenomenology. Uh, and then I had lunch with a, uh, with, uh, with someone and, uh, she was telling me, no, actually you should just own up to it. You're doing phenomenology. And so I was like, okay, uh, like I said, I'm good at taking advice and being told what to do. So, um, so this book is an attempt to, to make peace with phenomenology. You could say even like sensory phenomenology or something, but from a political standpoint and very much in the wake of work by feminists, by queer theorists, by disability scholars, uh, and in the beginning of uh, the anesthetics of experience, Cressida Hayes does a really, if you don't know the current state of phenomenology, Cressida Hayes at the beginning of that book does a really good outline of where the field is at now, as opposed to saying phenomenology is Husserl, Heidegger, Merleau Ponty, sort of the the uh, uh, you know the dead white guys model, um, which you know I'll someday be also, but uh, but not today. So the book, um, so the book isn't just about my voice. I say it's about not speaking well, not hearing well, and not feeling well, and. Uh, each section of the book tries to deal with those 
diminished faculties in a different way. Uh, and in the process, I tried to, um, I tried to decenter my own agency and command of the world a little bit, which is a difficult thing to do when you're writing a book. I think Michelle, my friend Michelle Friedner says, you know, you tried to be an unreliable narrator, but you actually failed to be unreliable. And I think that she's probably right, right? I mean, books are books are always more ambitious than what they accomplish. Uh, and so I think my failed attempt to be unreliable is actually a structuring aspect of the of the text. I mean, there's already tons to dive into there, I think. But um, maybe to start with a kind of broad brushstrokes question, one structuring concept you use is this idea of impairment phenomenology. Um, so could could you maybe outline what, what you mean by impairment phenomenology? Well, yes, I could. So uh, there's two parts of the, I mean, it's two words, right? So we have to unpack both of them. Uh there are lots of people who've done work on the phenomenology of illness or the phenomenology of disability. Now, phenomenology can mean three things. It could probably mean many more, but I think of three things. One is when it's just used as a fancy word for experience, like when you're reading a text and somebody says narrativize and they actually mean narrate. Uh, so sometimes phenomenology is just a fancy word for experience. Sometimes it refers to the uh, the sort of written tradition of academic phenomenology. Um, and then the third is phenomenology is a kind of a investigation from the standpoint of a subject of the conditions of possibility for experience. That is what I mean. Now, when one does phenomenology, normally one assumes that they are in command of their own faculties. So if you read Marilyn Ponty, uh, and the, I'm so grateful for uh, text-searchable PDFs. When you read Marilu Ponty, uh, there is this meticulous I can, I can't discourse throughout the phenomenology of perception. Uh, and you see that also in an inverted form, like in Sarah Ahmed's queer phenomenology, uh, when uh, she is playing on Martin Heidegger's discussion of a hammer. And she's like, well, what if the hammer is too heavy for me? And... Uh, in general, it is assumed that a, a phenomenologizing subject is in command of its faculties, it knows its abilities, it knows its limits. And so the other half of that term is the impairment, right? What if you don't know? What is it like to begin from a position of not knowing? And this is also my contrarian reaction to the fact that we're in a very affirmative moment in the history of disability theorizing, which I think is good because the academic world and COVID has definitely shown us this is profoundly ableist in so many different registers. And I'm certainly not the first person to comment upon this. And if you're interested, I recommend like Jay Dolmage's uh, academic ableism and Mar Margaret Price, Matt at school. Um, and there's lots more out there as well. Um, but academia is so, so incredibly ableist that it makes sense, for instance, when my undergraduates walk into a disability studies class that um, one of the purposes of the course has to be to show disabled people as um, protagonists of history, like everybody else, uh, and as agents 
Um, and outside the sort of standard cliched crypt narratives of like pathos or overcoming or inspiration or all these things, like I get that. That's good. But from a theoretical standpoint, isn't it interesting that even in disability studies, when we recount experience, we assume we are non-disabled with respect to it. There are exceptions, um, especially in the MAD studies literature. I think there are some really interesting uh, exceptions. So I did the book is in part an attempt to think, well, what would it mean to do a more modest phenomenology? And there I'm just, you know, Stuart Hall's call that we should all be modest as scholars. So that's part of it. Um, there's always more to say, and I could talk a bit about impairment versus disability, but I want to let you, uh, that was already a long answer. So I'm going to let you uh, steer me. Well, well, I mean, just before we get kind of stuck into more of the meat of the book, I, I just wanted to ask, because you, you raised those three impairments in the book. Um, you said, you know, not hearing well, not uh, speaking well and not feeling well. I, I was just wondering whether there are others that you considered including, other impairments, why those and, you know, why not anything else? Well, why not anything else is like the book was already getting long and this is the shortest book I've ever written. Uh, so uh, why not anything else? Because I had to stop uh, and I'm certainly not done with the themes in the book, although I don't think like I will write another book like Diminished Faculties. Uh, I don't think that was the purpose of the exercise, as it were. Um, so I picked the voice one is obvious because uh, it happened to me and people said you should write about what happened to your voice. So I did. Um, and I tried to put it in dialogue with the literature on disability and design and with the literature on voice and vocality and especially this sort of ideology, what I call an ideology of vocal ability, uh, the idea that a voice is tied to the interiority of a subject, voice is a metaphor for agency, things like that. What would it mean to think voice outside those frameworks? Um, the listening chapter is actually the oldest part of the book. And I think I came up with the idea for it sometime in the 2000s, probably when I myself was attending a rock concert. So the, the listening section is called Odile Scarification on Normal Impairments. And the, the idea is basically that if you look at um, your modern urban industrial society subjects, so me in Montreal, and let's just say in a non-COVID setting where people go in pub loud public places, you're in London, right? Mm -hmm. Right? Same thing in London, right? You go out in public. There are many situations in which it appears, like if you just read the environment, that there's a cultural preference for hardness of hearing. And if you look at literature outside of deaf studies, uh, the assumption is always, you know, hearing loss is bad for you. People don't want to lose their hearing. And uh, the reason that they do lose their hearing is because they don't know that it's bad for them, right? It's like the anti-smoking discourse, which is equally uh, ineffective in persuading smokers. Um, and so I said, well, what if we take a slightly less moralistic standpoint? Uh, what if we learn from scholarship on the on, on deaf gain and uh, frame deaf studies where deafness is understood as a way of engaging with the world. Sign language is understood as a linguistic modality. 
And uh, we say, okay, well, what is it, you know, how does a culture work where, uh, you know, it's better to be a little bit of hard of hearing when you go into a public bathroom and there's one of those high throughput hand dryers, or you're on an airplane next to the jet, or you're at a concert, or you're at a Hollywood film, or you're at a bar or a sporting event. Um, All of these things would be painful for people who had quote unquote normal hearing according to the way audiology is normally done. And in fact, I found there's an international standard for, for hearing loss. Um, and hearing loss itself is of course a metaphor uh, because some people as their hearing is transformed actually gain sensitivity and acuity sometimes in quite problematic ways. Like if you're, if you're have hyperacusis or you are, um, uh, if you have misophonia and so you're super sensitive uh, to certain kinds of sounds, that can be a problem. Maybe you have tinnitus where you constantly hear a sound. And so that chapter is at once exploring that and also challenging this idea um, that's very common in disability theory and in queer theory that norm is the opposite of the sort of diminished or negative category. Right. And so the chapter proposes this idea of normal impairments as the flip side of the coin of something like compulsory able-bodiedness. Okay. So the third chapter was supposed to be on seeing, but it didn't work. Uh, I, and I tried all these different things and I just couldn't find a good hook. Um, I felt like Georgina Cleage had already said everything I needed to say, um, and in her two books. And so, um, the seeing one didn't work that well. Someone had also suggested moving. Um, but there's actually a lot uh, on that. And I am not the person to do that work in part because uh, I feel like you'd need to go into areas like dance that I'm just not that educated in. Um, but the fatigue thing came and came along kind of naturally as something that cuts across the mental and physical disability, mental and physical impairment um, boundary. And also fatigue is interesting because uh, it is usually described as pure lack or absence. I call it a depletionist model. Like you don't have energy. Your energy is gone. You've used up your fuel. Uh, And that is a model that is rejected elsewhere in disability theory. So what would it mean to have a positive theory of fatigue? And what would it mean to parochialize the negative model of fatigue? Um, And so that's the last chapter. And uh, actually, as I was working on it, I developed a kind of chronic fatigue as a result of the medication I take to keep the spots in my lungs from growing. And I talk a bit about that. But you can't really do a phenomenology of fatigue because when you're fatigued, you're not able to give it. And when you're not fatigued, at least in my experience, it's hard to imagine what it's like to be fatigued. So it's a comment. Um, uh, and people in disability studies write about this. Uh, and people have written about this with pain, too. It's hard to imagine when you're not in it. And when you're in it, it's, it's hard to describe. So those are the three pillars of the book. You could have had a chapter on on motion and movement, could have had a chapter on seeing. I mean, you could have had chapters on on other faculties, right? Um, Intellection, sobriety versus uh, intoxication. There's all sorts of things that 
I could have done, but uh, that's what we got. And I have to say, because of because so many people are getting COVID now, the fatigue chapter I, I like to call it the sleeper hit of the book, because uh, um, it seems to really uh, it seems to be resonating with people because they're dealing with it and trying to make sense of it. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, it felt uh, extraordinarily prescient. A kind of you know couldn't be more timely in some ways. Um, yeah, so I mean. Moving back to the more towards the start of the book, you you mentioned a couple of alternative models of impairment that can be traced in the history of communication engineering in particular, and I found that really fascinating. Um, so, could you tell us a little bit about that and how these might help us think differently about impairment and disability? Yeah, for sure. So um, that. Uh, is mostly inspired by the work of Mara Mills, but also inspired by years of like studying and talking with engineers. So uh, when humans talk about impairment, well, humans, I'll say we, and by we, I mean sort of the bourgeois academic habitus that is likely listening to this podcast. Um, When we talk about Uh, impairment, we generally talk about it as a lack, an absence, something to be avoided, um, and uh, something that's exceptional. But in communication engineering, the term transmission impairments uh, developed in the early 20th century, and especially this is like around the telephone system, as a way of describing obstacles to the goal of transmitting a signal. It was never assumed that uh, infrastructure would be without impairments, transmission impairments. And it was never, I mean, in media theory now, the hot thing is uh, information theory and Claude Shannon and the idea of noise and, you know, maybe Michel Serres and the idea that there is no signal without also noise. Um, So this is a slightly earlier version of that where... um, the the all co- no communication can be perfect communication because it exists in a material context and so the goal is to have a transmission system that has a certain level of impairment but we know what it is we can specify it and we can live with it that is very different to how people talk about their own impairments at least in my social world i don't know about yours i don't know about the um that of uh the listeners. Um, so that's part of it. And then there's the specific role of impairment and disability theory. So very often, um, well, I should say for those of you who aren't familiar with disability theory, let me back up. So in disability studies, there's this thing called the social model of disability, which uh probably makes immediate sense to you. Uh, Disability is not just this natural, individualized thing that inheres in the person. It is constructed. It is um, disabilities don't inhere in individuals. Environments are disabling. Disabilities exist because of context, right? If you don't ever read print, you do not have a print disability, right? A mobility impairment means uh, something different if you have to walk upstairs versus if there's an elevator. Or as Susan Wendell puts it, um, how far must you be able to walk in order to not be disabled? Uh, growing up in the American suburbs, as I did, there there's one answer to that question living in the city of Montreal now. Uh, that's There's another answer to that question. 
Um, so this is the social model of disability. Now, disability scholars have criticized this, just as we've seen with the new materialism in other fields. Uh, they've criticized the sort of hard constructivist position because how do you deal with the reality of neurodivergence or pain or, for that matter, um, the sort of uh, cultural expansion, expansiveness of deaf or blind culture, right? A, a notion of disability as social construct doesn't get at those things. Some are like material and real in the sense of um, – seem as if they exist outside culture. Others are cultural, but they're real. And to say it's constructed is maybe um, not sufficient to give an account of it. But so far, this hasn't been done for impairment. Um, people have called for it. People have talked about it. Um, but impairment is often treated as the substrate of um disability. So it's sort of like Gail Rubin's old uh, Traffic in Women essay where sex is the biological substrate of gender, which is a social construct. Um, so if we want to use that metaphor, I am trying to Judith Butler the disability impairment dyad by saying impairment, just like sex, is also itself produced, constructed, contingent, and everything else. But it is also material and real at the same time. Um, I always tell my, my students more than one thing can be true, and this is very much uh, a case of that. I misspoke a moment ago. There are actually people who've made this suggestion before me. I'm not the first. Allison Kafer uh, makes a suggestion like this um, at the beginning of uh, uh, Feminist Queer Crip, um, and a number of other scholars do too. And impairment comes up in disability theory pretty consistently from the 1990s as a thing that needs to be theorized and addressed in one way or another. Um, so I don't want to say I'm the first, um, but I, I'm perhaps the most obsessed. I don't know. Maybe not even that. Um, maybe that's also uh, um, too, too uh, self-aggrandizing. But it's a major theme of the book is – uh, how are impairments produced and how do they relate to disability? And just to foreshadow my conclusion, uh, one of the things I say is disability becomes this, it becomes something that's legislated and becomes an identity category in a way that impairment does not. Um, and so if you say, well, what's the difference between an impairment and a disability if they're both physical and they're both constructed, it's that they're constructed differently, right? Disability, you know, there's a Jasper Poir line about like who gets to be disabled, um, by which I think she's really referring to sort of the way neoliberal states label people. Um, and uh, one could also say who identifies with uh, a disability versus not. Uh, and you could go even further. I mean, Kafer in that same introduction has this great line about how most of the people whose lives might be addressed by disability theory would reject the label. Um, that doesn't mean they're all automatically should be understood as impaired, but I think impairment gets at a different aspect of that um, experience, which is not one that sort of rises to the level of self-constitution, but is more processual, contingent. Um, and I mean, everything's relational, um, but relational at a sort of micro level, I guess. So yeah, that's, uh, that's what I'm trying to do there.
and that kind of the the blurry line between impairment and disability and the process of of coming out as disabled in some way is, is something you touch on as well in in the first couple of chapters right and i think that that's your your writing there really helps illustrate the distinction you're making i think i don't know if you could talk about that a little bit thanks um well could you say a bit more about which when you say it really illustrates which illustrations are you thinking of well just so i make just... sure i do what i'm told <laughs> no I, I mean i'm thinking specifically in the about the passage it's, I think, from a blog post, you talk about going to a party with um, cute like cue cards upon which you write, oh, yes. um, and how at the time your self-conception of, of yourself and your voice shifts as you are then writing about the blog, if that makes sense. Do, do you see what I'm getting at? Okay. So the story is that I went to a 40th birthday party for a couple friends, and this was right after I had three surgeries on my throat. In 2009, 2010. This was after the first one. My voice, can we swear on here? Absolutely. My voice was fucked. And it was really like hoarse, gravelly, and quiet and hard to hear. So we go to, and this is a dance party for two friends' 40th birthdays um, over over, uh, Christmas break. So I'm like, how am I going to communicate with people? Because I can't just sit there and yell. So I made all these index cards with the kinds of phatic communication people have at a party. How's it going? Fine. Would you like a drink? Yes or no? Tell me more. How are you? I'm fine. Cancer sucks. You know, so I, I, I made up this list of cards and I go to this party. But of course, a 40th birthday party means that a significant proportion of the people at the party are over 40. Uh, and uh, so the, a lot of people couldn't read my flashcards because they didn't bring their reading glasses. And so it was this spectacular failure. And then they would ask me to talk more or they would whisper at me because they would meet my level of, uh, of uh, speech. And by the way, good advice to de-escalate uh, conflict. If people are raising their voices, lower yours. And very often people will, uh, will match um, your, your tone of voice. So um, hot tip there. Well, though it didn't do me any good in the, at the party. So uh, here was a situation where I was attempting to um, negotiate an impairment that I had that I didn't even fully understand yet. And um, I walk into another situation, assuming that everybody else around me is unimpaired, which of course was not the case at all. Uh, so it's like, you know, it's a simple realization. It's like a good plot for a, for a sitcom episode or something. But, uh, but to me, that really spoke to the ubiquity of impairment and also it's you could say it's submersion as a sort of discursive category. It's everywhere and it's nowhere. Mm-hmm. I, and I guess that takes us on to the, uh, the chapter two, I think, where you discuss your experience using voice amplification, which you, you've uh, touched on a little bit already. But um, could you tell us a bit more about what you call the Dorker phone and your experiences using it and how you use this to, as a jumping off point to think more through the ideology of vocal ability? Yeah. So uh, I wear for, I mean, again, this is, we speak as if the pandemic hasn't happened for two years. I've been like, you know, teaching on Zoom and like everybody else using a microphone, not like everybody else using headphones as well. But um, 
But back in the day, I would uh, need a personal portable speech amplifier, some kind of amplification in order to uh, address a seminar for three hours and be able to keep my voice and not, you know, I can be quite loquacious, but I'm not the type of teacher that lectures for three hours. So it's not, it's, it's not that kind of thing. So uh, I got a device uh, called a speech amplifier, which is uh, a, it's like a transistor radio without the radio. So very small amplifier, batteries inside it, uh, square box. There's a picture of it actually on the cover of the book. Um, inside a faux leather vinyl pouch with a string that goes around my neck, and then there's a microphone that I wear on my head. Uh, now, uh, this is an unusual thing to wear. It's not unusual to wear a microphone, right? Like lots of, you know, the Bluetooth earpiece sort of uh, thing, which granted isn't considered a cool aesthetic, but it is it is plenty present. Um uh, so, so the device clearly marks me as in me as, as having some kind of difference or uh, disability. And after, after I acquired my, uh, paralyzed vocal cord, I had to learn how to speak again. I had a speech therapist who actually introduced me to these devices. Um, I call it the Dorcaphone because the O phone part is like, uh, futuristic technology of the past. And of course, dorky things aren't cool, um, which is like always the problem of crypt tech. And I named it probably after reading Graham Pullen's Design Meets Disability. And Pullen has lots of great things to say about sort of the aesthetics of disability and design and cathecting with objects. And I am very cathected with my dorkophone. Um, but uh, in a slightly ironic way. So I wear this thing and it marks my voices in need of supplementation. Uh, so again, to give you a, an example of a conundrum, I give an invited seminar somewhere on another campus where people don't know me. They just know me as this guy that wrote about sound. So if I do not explain the dorkaphone, I'm wearing a microphone and a speaker on my person as I address a room full of people. Am I making a profound philosophical comment on the mediality of the voice and the supplementarity of all communication? Or am I just wearing this weird thing, right? Um, so of course the answer is yes, I'm doing both by virtue of wearing a marked prosthesis uh, that like all quote unquote assistive technologies, uh, shows that I'm a person in need of assistance. And of course, all technologies are actually assistive, um, but assistive technology is a uh, term that is in English anyway, reserved usually for technologies designed for um, disability. So I started researching the sort of the history and making of these things. I experimented with alternative uh, versions of it as well. Um, and uh, yeah, I use that to sort of think about the politics of the voice, right? We are, you know, my voice is supposed to come from my mouth, not from my chest. And of course, what happens is people get used to it. And then it's as if it does, it's like going to a theater and you think that the voices are coming from the mouths of the, I mean, a movie theater, by the way, uh, the mouths of the characters when actually there's a pair of speakers on the side of the screen or something like that. So, 
Um, so, uh, so I spend some time talking about sort of the politics of the design of the thing, the expense of the thing, and just the, the, the sheer practicalities of having a voice in need of supplementation and then using a prosthesis. Um, then it's very much inspired by Vivian Subchak essay on her artificial leg, which I absolutely love and which is, uh, cited in the, um, cited in the piece. But the other thing it got me thinking about was this ideology of vocal ability, which I sort of kind of touched on in the audible past, but I didn't describe it in these terms. Ideology of ability is a phrase from Tobin Siebers, who says the ideology of ability is the preference for ability over disability, uh, the inevitableness of uh, the able over the inevitableness that able should be norm and disabled abnormal is this whole long list of oppositions um, ending with uh, then disabled people must be, must try as hard as possible to be non-disabled, but non-disabled people can act disabled if they feel like it. Um, so I, I took that and sort of uh, did a mashup with um uh, you could say the critique of the metaphysics of presence uh, from Derrida or um, some of the critiques of um, the sort of transcendence of the voice that have emerged in voice studies. People like Nina Eidsheim, who've written a lot about the race, racing and gendering of the voice, Kathy Meisel in multivocality, uh, Amanda Weidman. Um, uh, lots of scholars have sort of addressed this and said, well, um, what would happen if we thought about the voice in some way other than as a metaphor for agency or intention or efficacy in the world? What if it was just one potential faculty among others? We sort of desensationalized the voice. And that's really what I'm, I think that's what I do when I wear the Dorcaphone. And I also think it's what I'm trying to do in the third chapter, which is this, um, imaginary exhibition of uh, alternate uh, vocalities. So yeah, in a way, it's a very simple point, which is, you know, we tend to equate voice with agency. I mean, sometimes literally, if you look at the etymology of like voice and vote, uh, and uh, that's ableist, it's problematic. And it uh, sometimes uh, obscures more than it reveals. And uh, there's this line from Wendy Brown's Edgework, which is a book from, I think it came out in like 95. I could be wrong. In my bibliography, you can look it up. Um, and uh, she's got this line, it's the classic sort of Foucauldian thing about like, well, why do we think having a voice is the source of agency? Maybe power is making us speak. Uh, and uh, that also, I think, was, you know, that's from a political theory standpoint, and I think also quite profound and significant that, and you hear this all the time in like left movements, like silence being used as a metaphor for the removal of agency and voice as like the source of agency. Um, and I think we really need to question that, especially when you look at how our media systems work now. I think, you know, to use an old Foucault term, and this book is not very Foucauldian at all, we are very much living in a moment of an incitement to discourse. Yeah, I mean, that that was a point that really stuck out to me as something that hadn't occurred to me whatsoever. Um, and 
immediately struck me like, oh my God, yeah, of course, in so much left discourse, that's exactly the framing, you know, it's, it, voice is so front and centre. Yeah, that was a really striking uh, part of the book, I think. Um, and so you mentioned the imaginary exhibition, um, which is entitled In Search of New Vocalities. And I thought this was a great way of presenting kind of a combination of sources, renderings of artefacts and, and theory as well. Um, could you explain why you chose this kind of mode, this register as a way of presenting the chapter's contents? Yeah. Um, so the chapter is written as a uh, audio guide, as the text of an audio guide with a few, a few flourishes, right? Like there's also a map uh, of the exhibition and there's also some, I guess you could call it museography or, um, um, you know, text plates like you'd get if you walked up to an object in a museum with a description. Uh, and there's also audio descriptions of the, um, of the images that are in the text. And by the way, if you listen to the uh, PDF of the book, there are audio descriptions for every image in it. They're just only surfaced in that chapter. Um, so I, the simplest and most honest answer is I kind of gave up. I was collecting all this great and interesting art about um, voices and I was able to classify it and connect it and, um, and sort of give you lines of dissent, conceptual dissent, but there wasn't an argument coming together. And I sort of felt like if my argument is really like, couldn't we just give up on the, if my argument's basically negative, let's give up on the ideology of vocal ability and let a thousand flowers bloom Maybe rather than telling you this is how you think about should think about voice, this chapter should be here's a bunch of different ways of thinking about and representing voice and negotiating it. And now you go find others or be inspired by these if you are. Um, and so that did it went through multiple um uh, multiple uh, iterations, but Zoe DeLuca, who actually designed the layout based on an uh, Australian museum, uh, read it and said, you should, uh, you should take this more, ser you should take the exhibition thing more seriously and really like do the work of laying it out as an exhibition. And so that's what I did. Um, you know, I'm also very much committed to, um, there are many ways to present and disseminate knowledge. And uh, I spent a lot of time in the 2010s uh, engaging with friends who do sort of multimodal work in the digital humanities and experimenting with it myself. Uh, and I think that this is, it was a good way out of a situation where I wasn't going to be able to present a linear argument. Uh, it also hopefully presents this stuff as entertaining to read and it allows me um, to present the work of artists as sort of intellectually without having to give a definitive hermeneutic interpretation. This is what it means. This is how it works. Um, and without having to make the assertion that this is, this is intellectual work because it makes a proposition that's the same thing as a proposition I would make in a linear argument which I think is a mistake people sometimes make when they say, well, we should treat art philosophically. Um, 
That may be so, but it doesn't necessarily mean it has to be propositional in the way a scholarly argument would. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's that chapter. It was really fun to write and put together. I had a lot of help uh, from uh, Duke's design department too, in terms of like putting the book, um, putting the look of it together, making sure that in the PDF, the images were in color um, and figuring out how to integrate the audio descriptions um, into the text. Yeah. I mean, it's a really, really enjoyable part of the book, all of which is enjoyable, but I I did really like it. Um, I wondered if you could maybe discuss a couple of your like favorite new vocalities that you present in that chapter um, and maybe how they help to reveal you make a point at the end of the chapter that voice has no necessarily bodily or sonic dimension, uh, which, as you say, kind of might pose a couple of aesthetic and political challenges to some scholarship. Yeah, okay, for sure. Uh, so I'm going to pick two favorites. And if you hear rustling sounds, that's me looking through the book. So Hoden Yusu, some masks. This one, really hard for me to convey in print. Uh, I saw this video at a disability studies conference down the street at Concordia University in, I want to say 2018. Yeah, probably 2018. Uh, And it was part of a group of scholars from the University of Quebec au Montréal who were doing deaf music video and trying to come up with a sort of natively deaf form of music video. So it's a video and in the in the text, there's just a still from the video because I don't know how you put a moving image in a print book yet. Um, although you can go watch the video online now. Um, and I saw it blown up on a big screen in a totally silent auditorium. And it was really quite explosive to see. Um, it presented, it, it had everything you would want out of a music video, except it was deaf. Uh, and there's definitely a voice line being, I think, being performed um, by Yusuf's hands. And there's multiple images of her um, in it as well. Uh, so I really liked that. And I wanted, there's a, there's a few artifacts of deaf culture that in, in the exhibition, and I really wanted them there. Um, I've always said, you know, to understand sound studies, you need to at least know something about deaf studies. And uh, I wanted sort of deaf cultural and expressive practice to be uh, part of it because I do think, you know, uh, it is possible to have something like a deaf voice beyond simply um, deaf speech uh, for hearing people. So that's one. Uh, another favorite of mine, because it's funny and because it's so high concept, is Nina Kachadorian's Talking Popcorn. So um, Kachadorian takes a popcorn popper, puts a microphone inside of it. The microphone records the sound of the popcorn popping. Uh, this is then uh, trans using, using Max MSP software, this is then translated into Morse code, which is then translated into words, which is then spoken by a text to speech apparatus, right? So the popcorn popping is literally speaking, but there's no subject there. And Kachadorian then transcribes, uh, some of the speech, uh, at one point, talking popcorn self-immolated and uh, basically burnt itself to a crisp. Uh, and so uh, it had it had first words, it had last words, uh, and 
uh, Katadorian interviewed psychologists, cryptographers, death dewallas to get them to interpret uh, the last words of talking popcorn. So like if you want an, want a performance of speech without a subject, I think this is a really great and a funny and gentle example of that. Um, and the sheer contrivance of it, you know, the Rube Goldbergness of it, I think reveals something about all the work um, that you and I might do listening to speakers' speech in order to produce something like an intending subject. And that's sort of the that's the sort of trick of the piece is there's no intending subject there, but it can work totally like speech and totally like a voice. Um, and in fact reveals, um, the degree to which all voices are produced in the hearing. So, uh, that's another favorite of mine. Yeah. I, I absolutely loved that one as well. Particularly the fact that, yeah, at one point it burst into flames. Yeah, so just move on to the your chapter on on hearing loss and audio scarification, which we have covered already uh, a bit. But I mean, there's tons in there. But one of the things I thought was really interesting was how you talk about um, the notion of consent and in, in, like implicit consent to the loss of to, to a degree of hearing loss as part of the process of acquiring a normal impairment. C- could you expand on that slightly? Yeah, thanks. Um, So first of all, when I say consent, I'm using very specifically the Gramscian notion of consent. And for Gramsci, consent is like saying uncle or like giving in to the general direction of the situation, I think is the way he puts it at one point. Um, It's not consent, for instance, in the way we would talk about consent uh, in a sexual relationship or in a legal relationship, like I consent to having my voice recorded uh, for this interview, that's really important to understanding what's going on, uh, which is it takes a lot of work to not consent. Um, And uh, so audiles, I use the term audile scarification to, you could say, anthropologize the transformations of hearing that are produced by large cultural institutions and sort of default technologies. So, as I said, you know, movie theaters, restaurants, rock concerts, um, you know, if you're sitting in front of the piccolo flutes in the orchestra, um, if you're <laughs> at a loud restaurant, if you're sitting next to the jet on the airplane uh, without earplugs, all of these things transform over time, transform a person's capacity to hear. Uh, and so rather than looking at that as a, a sad side effect or a you know, result of false consciousness, I said, well, what if we say our culture actively produces this kind of impairment to what end um, and how does it work? And one of the things I wind up doing following that anthropological thread and actually following the literature on scarification and tattooing um, and piercing uh, is the idea that through bodily participation, bodily transform, sorry, let me just start again. Through bodily transformation, one performs a rite of institution and becomes open to new things and able to participate in a certain way. 
right? And this is the opposite of the way people usually talk about hearing, right? So if speech is one's agency in the world, and again, I'm criticizing that idea in the ideology of uh, vocal ability, um, there's this romantic idea that hearing is openness to alterity. And you'll notice that both concepts um, have a way of dehumanizing deaf mute people, um, and this goes back to Aristotle, actually. Like, it's an old, it's a very old ableism. Um, so hearing is the openness to the other. Uh, the most radical statement I think of this is Jean-Luc Nancy's Listening, which is like a cuddly, warm book. I just don't think it's actually a very accurate description of how listening works. I think it's using a metaphor of listening to describe the kind of intersubjectivity for which he wants to argue and which... I don't, it's a nice rosy version of how social life should unfold. And so I have no quarrel with that. But if you say this is how listening works, I think not at all. Uh, so audile scarification becomes a, uh, an openness to certain environments. And I, I talk about like the very intentional uh, use of loud music, for instance, in industrial manufacturing context, there's this great line in Rivet Head, which is a book about um, uh, assembly line workers in an auto plant. Uh, you know, and I, I also have quotes from musicians and uh, sound engineers talking about loudness as uh, a way of being together and being in a place. Uh, and of course, there's all this discourse as well written discourse on loudness and the sub and sublimity as well, right? The awesomeness of things that are sort of beyond, uh, beyond the body. And I don't want to romanticize it uh, because then I'm just inverting the sort of uh, the sort of romanticization of, of hearing and listening as openness to the other. Um, but I think it's important to take it seriously as a set of cultural practices. And I actually end the chapter with a, with uh, with discussions of misophonia, uh, because misophonia, which is uh, sensitivity to certain sounds, for instance, say chewing sounds is a really common thing that misophonic people um, struggle with. Uh, one way you deal with uh, misophonia to be able to be more open to the world is to play loud music for yourself. I mean, not everybody who has it does this, but, um, but I have an interview with someone who's misophonic who talks about this in the chapter, I also talk about uh, earplugs uh, as a kind of auditory prophylaxis that also provides access. And I was surprised at how little history, like cultural history of earplugs there was when I was doing this work. In fact, uh, one could imagine writing a whole um, history, a whole, a whole other history of uh, earplugs. Um, uh, there, anyway, there's more to be said, but I will, I'll leave it there. No, I mean, I mean, yeah, that whole section was was really fascinating, and again, one of those things that reading it, it felt like yeah, it really clicked about the idea about, um, yeah, reframing hearing loss as as gaining access to certain conditions, states of being, social situations, um, in that context, yeah, is, is feels instinctively accurate, I think, um, and then you also you touched on it there provide a kind of really interesting account of how 120 decibels specifically becomes accepted as this what is it it's the high volume where that is deemed to be dangerous is that the yeah except it's not 
I mean, yeah. that's the funny thing about it. It becomes this thing that everybody just, this number that people use, I think I call it the number of the sublime. It's like the number of the beast or something. Uh, the 666 of audio. And uh, it actually is a very nonspecific uh, measurement in the, in the, like if you look at the decibel range, uh, if you're exposed to less than 120 decibels regularly, it would be expected to erode your hearing sensitivity in certain areas. Um, and 120 decibels also is not quite as loud as say like an airplane taking off or something. So it's also not the like limit of hearing or even the threshold of pain necessarily, but it's become this weird marker um, is like arbitrary precision um, uh, term I get from uh, Dylan Mulvin, right? It's just like arbitrary. It's strangely precise, but in fact, it's quite, nebulous. So you'll see this term come up as a kind of signifier of sublime loudness or painful loudness or loudness in excess. And I, I quote from Barry Blesser, uh, who, uh, who's at an audio engineer's uh, convention. He talks about, you know, music being played at 120 decibels, right? That's his guess. Um, I talk about a Marco Fusinato uh, art installation that calls for sound at 120 decibels. Like it's this very strange um, uh, mock precision, um, but somehow tries to capture this aspect of uh, very loud sound and represent it. And, and that connects to point other points you make about the kind of, yeah, again, the like slightly alluring subcultural qualities of very high volumes um, and the connection that also can have with machismo and stoicism as well, which I thought was was interesting. And then, and then moving on to your final chapter where you where you discuss fatigue, uh, what you expand on there is a, a common touchstone in conveying the experiences and challenges of living with fatigue as well as other impairments and disabilities, which is spoon theory. So could you explain the benefits and maybe some of the limitations of spoon theory as a way of thinking about and maybe politicizing fatigue and dis disability and then how you maybe try and move beyond it a bit? Yeah, sure. Okay, so spoon theory, the phrase is coined in a blog post in, I think, 2002 by uh, Christine or Christina Miserandino, cited in the book. And the spoon theory is basically her explaining to her friend what it's like to live with a chronic illness and the fatigue that comes from it. So she's in a coffee shop. She goes around and collects a bunch of spoons, puts them on the table, and says, look, you wake up in the morning with a certain number of spoons. Then you do things which cost spoons. So you, um, you get up and you take a shower. That costs a spoon. You have breakfast. That costs a spoon. And on and on. And very quickly, you run out of spoons. So there comes a point where it's like you can either do something with your friends in the evening um, or you can like do basic self-care, but you don't have the spoons to do both is uh, one potential uh, uh, example. And of course, her friend is immediately like, but wait, I don't have enough spoons. And that's what she says. And that's the moment I knew it was going to work. And so, you know, there's a spoony hashtag that you can find on various social media platforms and then various permutations of the spoon theory, like the fork theory, which says it's like stick a fork in me, I'm done, uh, which is sort of like what happens. It's, it's a version of the straw that broke the camel's back where um, 
where some very small event triggers a, a meltdown or like a complete, uh, uh, um, yeah, just basically a complete meltdown because you're so overextended and so exhausted. So um, this is a very powerful and persuasive way for people to talk about their fatigue. I've heard students who don't seem to understand themselves as disabled say, I don't have the spoons for that. Um, so it's, it's sort of moved its way into common parlance. Um, so it's been really powerful for people. When I've given talks about it, one of the first questions I almost always get is, how, how do I get more spoons? Which is the wrong question, but also fascinating that that's the first, um, that's the first question. So on one hand, super empowering and also interesting because it's an inversion or a, an appropriation of the disability discourse that so commonly uh, treats uh, treats fatigue as lack in a subject, right? So in a way, it's like it's analogous to the appro- cultural appropriation of queer, where uh, I don't have the energy becomes a kind of identity claim and a sort of. Um, way of representing yourself and mobilizing yourself in relations to other people, right? Hence the Spoonies hashtag. Uh, So it's a really interesting sort of form of cultural reappropriation, but what is being reappropriated? And that's really the body of the chapter is where does this idea of fatigue as depletion come from, right? So as I said before, uh, in most other disability theory, Uh, and disability studies scholarship, there is an attempt to challenge the idea of disability as lack. And what I'm trying to do is say, well, what, what if we could do that to fatigue? What would it mean to parochialize and historicize the idea of fatigue as lack? And second of all, um, to try to come up with alternatives. And so that's really the body of the chapter. So Part of it is sort of Marxist labor history, right? Sort of looking at management as trying to get more out of its workers. Part of it is looking at the traffic between ideas of metal fatigue and body fatigue in the 19th century. Part of it is looking at the medicalization of fatigue, where um, medical concepts of fatigue um, structurally exclude fatigue from work. As a kind of medicalizable fatigue, there's a little bit on chronic fatigue syndrome or MECFS, as a lot of people like to call it now. Um, and all of these ideas I describe as depletionist models of fatigue because they treat the human subject as a subject that's energetic, that is depleted of energy, and then it's replenished usually through rest and care and things like that. Um, now, obviously, chronic fatigue is fatigue that does not resolve through that, right? Because um, the model, these models of fatigue say, well, everybody gets tired, right? The problem is when the tiredness never goes away. So how else can you think about fatigue? And here's where sort of phenomenology returns a little bit. Um, and also, this is not what I expected at all, but like existentialism, um, which is not like the new hotness in cultural theory at all. Um, Emmanuel Levinas, of all people, wrote about fatigue in his early work, which is not the work that most Levinasians cite. I didn't know this when I was uh, reading about it. Um, 
but fatigue is a presence. And then in the mid 20th century and, and sort of like uh, existential psychology, one finds these ideas of uh, fatigue as a presence rather than an absence in a subject. And so from that, I say, well, what would it mean to treat fatigue as presence as something about a person? And how would you build a politics from that? Um, and so there I draw on the burgeoning scholarship on refusal, which is there's some stuff on refusal and disability theory, especially around the politics of accommodation and the idea that, for instance, if you are disabled, you want the same media experience as non-disabled people. So uh, Georgina Cleage, who I mentioned before, writing about audio description for blind audiences, um, John Lee Clark, uh, one of the main sort of thinkers and teachers of pro-tactile, which is a language for deaf-blind people, uh, talks about also refusing um, refusing certain kinds of accommodation. Uh, Chancy Fleet, um, a blind educator, also uses that language. Uh, but of course, you know, you look in indigenous studies, you look in black studies, like this is a very, very big place of political theorizing today, right? Which assume refusal is about refusing the legitimacy of the claims being put upon you. Um, and it is saying no to say yes to something else. So it's not a negative politics, even though it sounds like it, I refuse or whatever, talk to the hand. Uh, it's actually not. It's saying no to say yes to something else, which is usually about building your own life ways and institutions and something else. So how does that work with a very fatigued person? Right. Uh, um, you know, and as I said before, when you're fatigued, you're not necessarily able to like give an account of yourself. Refusal is understood as a very intentional, agentic act. And so I try to construct uh, this, uh, this moment, you could say, of what happens after refusal, like the state of already having refused without the agentic act of refusal. And I have a few examples of this uh, from uh, um, from other people. Uh, so, for instance, NAP Ministry, this sort of rest is resistance um, uh, principle or um, a story about uh, the protesters on the Capitol Mall in Washington, D.C. in the U.S. who were told that they could stay there, but they could not sleep there. But of course, at a certain point, they had to fall asleep, uh, right? And so that was a moment not of active resistance or active refusal, but moving into a state of having refused. And so how might we theorize a politics of, uh, or a demand of fatigue uh, from that uh, standpoint? And ultimately that, loops around back to the epigraph of the book, which is there needs, there must be no litmus test uh, for being human. Right. And again, like I said, I'm sort of a failed post humanist in the sense that um, a lot of disability politics is still about asserting the right to be the right to be fully human. And so what would it mean to take the fully fatigued or the state of full fatigue as a, uh, a moment that is both entitled and dignified, I guess you could say. Um, and then the book ends with a cat throwing up on me. And I'll, 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 uh, I won't say more about that, so I'll leave you in a little bit of suspense. And originally I wanted the book just to end there, but then the re reviewers were like, you have to have a conclusion. So then I wrote a conclusion. 
Well, yeah, I mean, we, we, we're a bit short on time, but I, I wanted to talk about the fact that in, in lieu of a, a orthodox conclusion, that it's a user manual. There was just one phrase in there that I, I thought was really, really neat um, that I wanted to ask you to unpack a bit, which was the phrase, impairment is a detour, which I really liked. So I wondered if you could speak to that a little bit. Oh, that's great. Thanks. Nobody's asked me about that yet. Um, yeah, I like the idea of impairment as a detour in the same way that it this is the idea of disability and impairment as affordances and possibilities, just as detours put you in um, put you in contacts that you might not have intended and you might see or encounter things that you didn't expect. I mean it in, two, in both senses of the term detour, right? There's the detour where you were going somewhere and you couldn't get there, so you had to go around. Uh, right. And that's the sense of impairment as like lacking a certain ability. And then there's the intentional detour or taking the long way Stuart Hall's detour through theory, uh, where it's a very intentional reconstruction of the world. Uh, and so that's what I'm trying to do with that phrase. And it's certainly been the case in my life. I mean, in a way, I'm very lucky to have become more impaired after having read a lot of disability theory. Um, uh, but that's how I view it as sort of, and, and I say this a number of times in the book is like the acquired impairments I have, I'm relating them to you, not as like a, a tragic story, but as a way of studying, engaging with and encountering the world. No, absolutely. Um, yeah. And I think that it comes through so strongly throughout the book as as exactly that. So yeah, I'm, I'm glad we could kind of draw to a close on the, on that. Um, and then I guess what's next? What are you working on now? Oh God. Um, <laughs> well, I'm doing a bunch of stuff. I'm writing a series of essays, mostly with grad students on machine listening and machine hearing. I just put in a application to do a pilot project on of interviews with musicians with acquired impairments uh, that relate somehow to their uh, practice. And I've been co-writing this book with Mara Mills called Tuning Time, Histories of Sound and Speed. Um, that's a history of time stretching and pitch shifting, which sounds super technical, but it's not. Imagine that there was no history of slow motion cinema and someone wanted to write one. This is about speeding up and slowing down recorded audio um, and the sort of his, uh, the cultural history of the technique rather than the technologies to do it. Uh, so it begins with, you know, on one hand, there's always engineers, but also uh, blind phonograph hackers. And it ends with like audible.com, uh, auto-tune Ableton Live and uh, university undergraduates speeding up their lectures during COVID, um, the recorded lectures. So, um, so yeah, the book is about sort of the history and politics of, of uh, you could say rate, which is not a term that gets like temporality and time are like the big fancy uh, theoretical terms we like to use in media studies, um, but we're sort of giving a history of the politics of rate. And we have a couple pieces out already, one's in PMLA, one's in Triple Canopy, they can give you a taste of what we're, what we're up to there. Cool. Well, listeners can go and read them in anticipation for the book, I'm sure. Um, well, yeah, thanks very much for your time. It's been uh, really great to chat about the book. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, and thanks for all your work uh, prepping for the interview. It's uh, This is one of my favorite podcasts and I'm thrilled to be on. That's brilliant. Thanks.